friends, we are moving into a new phase of pandemic. And as we do so, instability and anxiety are mounting. Frustration and anger are building. Patience is wearing thin, and whatever resides in the deep wells of our interior life will be increasingly on display. In what follows, I would like to sketch an image for where we are now, how we make decisions, what freedom really is, where we are headed, and how we get there. All of this is in anticipation of our parish meeting at the end of the month, where we will be discussing our phased approach to re-emergence as a parish. Strap in, folks. This is going to be a long one. The Ice Age. Where are we now? On March 20th, Andy Crouch wrote an essay entitled Leading Beyond the Blizzard. In it, he framed the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of a blizzard, a winter season, and an ice age. The basic gist of Andy's post was that getting through the initial blizzard of COVID-19 wouldn't carry us through what's coming. We need to prepare for a mini ice age. Many of us are beginning to realize this, even just intuitively. It's starting to feel as though our civic leaders have given us moving targets with flattening the curve and social distancing. As executive powers and stay-at-home orders are extended, thereby exacerbating joblessness and economic chaos, it is inevitable that despair and frustration will be on the rise. We live in an age of rapid change and near-constant flux. Just a generation or two ago, we had about three TV channels to choose from. I can remember my dad taking me down to our local library to learn how to use this thing called the internet. I was already married when I sat my wife down to show her this amazing new product called Facebook. My mom used to order books over the phone out of a catalog. Call up, give a credit card number, read off the ISBN, and sometime in the next month or two, a box of books would show up. Now I can order books online from just about any publisher in about 20 seconds. And if they take more than a few days to arrive, I start to wonder if they got lost in transit. With all of these changes, even just in the way we consume media and goods and services, it feels like several lifetimes have expired since that non-internet time. But really, it's only been a matter of decades. This point is important and cannot be overstated. We have all grown accustomed to having what we want, when we want it. This isn't a finger wag. It's not even a moral assessment, it's simply our experience of the world. It's important for us to recognize that pandemics intrinsically aren't moved past in a matter of weeks. We must reckon with the idea that life as we knew it in January of this year will not return to us for some time. The formation of our desires and expectations to have what we want when we want it factors in here. Our assumption that things should move along quickly is colliding with the biological reality of COVID-19. This virus is not a gossip column that holds our attention for five minutes and then disappears. It's a plague that has the potential to dramatically reshape human society for a generation. All of which means where we are now isn't much different from where we were a month ago. In fact, this is basically what flattening the curve is all about. Social distancing and stay-at-home orders were put in place in in an attempt to keep this thing from spiraling and overwhelming our medical systems. But when you flatten a curve, you stretch out a line. It's simply going to take time for life to return to normal, whatever that may look like. We're not in a blizzard. We're in a hopefully mini ice age. Whether our leaders could have made different, better decisions in response to the initial frost of COVID-19 is easy to obsess over, but they made the decisions they made. We are where we are, not where we wish we were.
The virtues. How do we make decisions? We are entering a very complex moment in this mini ice age. When and how we re-emerge is being imprinted on a billion PowerPoint slides even now. Our civic leaders are wrestling with the reality that the virus has not gone away, and yet neither have our needs as social creatures. We cannot exist in lockdown and isolation for an extended period of time without consequence. The law of unintended consequences is a big one. I've been teaching my kids how to play checkers, and one of the things that's hard for them to grasp is that sometimes you have to accept a smaller loss, one checker piece, in order to avert a larger disaster. Have our measures to combat COVID-19 averted disaster or amplified it? It's something we could argue about for a while, and we may never know. Our local governments are increasingly feeling the pressure to reopen society in an effort to stave off the economic collapse that is already in our midst. As they do so, churches and other groups will be legally allowed to regather, while often simultaneously being pleaded with by local officials to hold off on gathering to avoid further spread of the virus. So how do we make decisions as a parish? To begin with, love, not fear, must be the soil of our hearts. As I've said repeatedly since our physical distancing began, we are not refraining from gathering because of fear. We are refraining from gathering because of love for our neighbors. As we move into re-emergence, love must be our constant refrain. We must cultivate and be guided by virtue. Just as fear will lead us to make disastrous decisions, so too will bald courage. Courage must dwell with prudence. This morning I read Psalm 91, a beautiful psalm of courage, hope, and faith in the midst of terror. You will not fear the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you, says the psalmist. What faith, what courage, what reliance upon the strength of God. And yet, just a few verses later comes a line in this psalm that has been made famous in the New Testament. Many psalms are quoted and alluded to in the New Testament, but this one is different. This one is quoted by Satan as he tempts Christ to prove his divine sonship by plunging himself off the pinnacle of the temple. After all, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, right? We must not allow courage to be nothing more than a plastic Halloween mask stretched over the face of foolishness. Christ is the embodiment of wisdom, and he calls us to be people of wisdom. We live in a world with a surplus of experts and a dearth of wisdom. There are professionals and pundits, thought leaders and conspiracy theorists aplenty. No doubt each of us could shotgun links to thought pieces, epidemiological models, political conspiracies, economic klaxon calls, and more, and all of them would likely contradict each other. If we are to dwell with one another in love and unity as the body of Christ in the coming weeks and months, we must, must submerge ourselves in wisdom and the cultivation of virtue, which is to say we must become and remain people of prayer. Do you remember over the years all the times I've encouraged you to do a liturgical audit of your life? How much of your day is spent online shopping, scrolling social media feeds, reading your favorite news outlets expose the lunacy of your political enemies? How much of your day is spent in the presence of Christ, with recognition that we enter his throne room only because of his great mercy and grace? How much of your reading is of the Psalms, the Gospels, the lives of the saints? Is your imagination primarily shaped by your political affiliation? National identity, race, gender, economic status? Or is it shaped by the way of the cross that each of us is called to in Christ? 
Is your heart filled with condescension toward your weak and fear-filled neighbors, anger toward your inept leaders, bitterness and resentment toward your family, obsession over your finances? What does Christ call you to meditate upon? How does Christ ask you to use the breath of your mouth when you speak? What does Christ call you to do in this world? Christ, who stood before Pilate with silence and humility. Christ, who allows Judas to kiss him. Christ, who restores Peter. Christ, who disappears into the loneliness of the wilderness that he might seek his father. Did Mary, the mother of our Savior, nurse bitterness at being thrust into a stable to give birth, she the birth giver of God in the flesh? Did Mary rail against Roman oppression? Did she run over and over along the grooves of her mind the fear and anger inspired by Herod in his attempt to kill her son? No. She pondered the angelic hymns and the worship given to the child Christ. As an aside, let me say, Parents, your children are hearing you. What are they hearing? Christ spent countless hours with Mary, and when he finally speaks, after years of hiddenness, when he gives his Sermon on the Mount, it sounds a lot like the Magnificat. Are your children hearing that they are a burden? Now that they're not in school, are they cramping the lifestyle you worked hard to create for yourself? Are they hearing that our government is run by idiots and crooks? Or are they hearing about the matchless love of Christ? Can they repeat the talking points of a political and economic crisis they can't possibly understand? Or can they say the Lord's Prayer? Our culture is a vice that seeks to exert all its pressure to reduce us to nothing more than economic factors or political agents. I do not deny that we have real political agency, real choices to be made as citizens that are living in the here and now. But we cannot possibly hope to make decisions of wisdom if we fit ourselves to the cultural molds on offer. We must seek Christ in prayer and scripture. In quietness and trust is your salvation. The hierarchy. What is freedom? Peter Kreeft once said, the national anthem of hell is, I did it my way. We live in a world that assumes that freedom is lack of restraint. My body, my choice, consenting adults, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, and on and on. The Christian understanding of freedom cannot be more different. Freedom is hierarchy. Wait, what? Stay with me. Hierarchy means rightly ordered, and the Christian understanding of the world is that true freedom comes when we are rightly ordered toward God. Apart from God, there is nothing but corruption and death. We must be rightly ordered, related to him in order to attain life. This is essentially the gospel message. Christ came in the flesh to restore the order that we ripped apart in our rebellion against God. Christ defeated death, but his rescue operation wasn't about letting us have a life of our own making. It's always been an offer of his own life. The call of Christianity isn't about relitigating our failures or making sure that we feel sufficiently bad about our dirty little secrets. The call of Christianity is about turning away from the death and nothingness we've reaped in our attempt at life on our own terms and turning toward the consuming fire of God's love as the very source of our life. True freedom isn't a lack of restraints. That's nothing but cold emptiness. True freedom is living in right relationship to the source of life. Part of that right relationship, right order, includes the means by which God exerts his will and authority in the world. This is why St. Peter can say to the churches he addresses that they are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
The emperor, of course, is the same man who would crucify Peter upside down. Now, this isn't a full-fledged political theology. After all, Peter defied the emperor by continuing to preach Christ as the world's true king. This is what got him killed. Similarly, the writer to the Hebrews enjoins his listeners to have confidence in their church leaders and submit themselves to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who will give an account. Just a few years later, St. Ignatius of Antioch would write to the church in Ephesus, Let us be careful, then, not to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. Here again, this is not a fleshed-out ecclesiology, nor is this the time to go into the horrors of abusive leadership and authoritarianism. As I try to address in most of my catechesis classes, more often than not, it is churches that seek to flatten hierarchy and hide authority that fall into authoritarianism. True and godly authority does not seek to be anything other than what it is. The church is not a democracy. It is a rightly ordered kingdom, or as someone once said, it's a body with Christ as the head. Each of us must work together in love and faith according to the direction of our head and his representatives. As I've said many times in the weeks of this pandemic, seeking to supersede the limitations placed upon us right now is a misdirection of our energy. Christ waits to meet us in this moment, not in the fantasy moment we imagine. Part of the way he meets us is in the authorities that are in our lives. This means that as a parish, we will continue to pray for our civic leaders, even and especially when we disagree with their policies. We will work to look beyond the legalese of their pronouncements in the coming days and weeks and seek to understand the spirit of what they are saying, how they are asking us to work together to keep from spreading the virus unnecessarily. Moreover, we will listen obediently and with joy to our bishop. We will pray for him fervently and with gratitude to God for giving us such a godly overseer. As we move into reemergence, we simply will not trespass the limitations given to us by our ecclesial authority in the person of the bishop. Of course, even within these limitations, we have decisions that must be made, with love, courage, and prudence as people of wisdom, and in that, I will not hide from you that I, as the rector of our parish, am a man under authority to our bishop and ultimately to Christ, and a man with a delegated authority from our bishop and ultimately from Christ. I do not take this lightly, and in seeking wisdom and in obedience to our bishop, I will not undertake any decision available to me without the unified voice of our vestry. Will we as a vestry make decisions differently than you would? Almost certainly. Will our timeline frustrate some of you and freak out others of you? Most likely. Will we get things wrong? Without a doubt. Do we need your prayer? Unfailingly. The Telos. Where are we headed? Our destination is nothing less than the dwelling place of the beginningless Father, together with his eternally begotten Son and the eternally processing Spirit. Our telos has not changed. It is always and ever the very life of God. What's more, my sacramental theology has not changed. I still believe with every fiber of my being that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. I still believe that this is the bread of heaven, the manna given us in our wilderness wandering in the world. It is the table set up for us in the presence of our enemies, the overflowing chalice of his life's blood that intoxicates us with the sober inebriation of his love. I long for the day when we will gather together again around Christ's altar to celebrate his mysteries, to be fed together with his own life. As we continue to climb up into Christ our mountain, we do not look back to what was, but ahead to what will be. The church itself is a sacrament of God's presence in the world, a symbol of his intervening love, 
a company of pilgrims who climb together with the animation of the Spirit up to the holy city. We must not long simply for the symbol, but for the thing itself, the unblemished lamb who has taken up his reign and already begun to rule with an iron scepter. We have reached a part of our mountain journey where we can see neither the destination nor our last base camp. Indeed, in the darkness of this present moment, we feel as if we've lost sight of each other. And yet we journey ever upward into Christ, surrounded, whether we realize it or not, by the great cloud of witnesses, all those who have gone on before us and await us with joy. We are not headed back to all souls in early 2020. We are headed to the city of God. The way. How do we get there? Jesus says to us, You know the way to the place where I am going. I am the way. Christ is not simply the mountain, he is the path. He is not only the ocean, he is the boat. Christ is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. While our journey is unknown almost entirely to us, it is, paradoxically, known. For Christ is our way, and he has been made known to us by the illumination of his Spirit. Let us follow him in all that we do and think and say. Friends, I have no dates or schedules or plans to give you today. Those will be coming in a few weeks. Even then, whatever plans we put in place may need to change quickly. The coming weeks have the potential to be frustrating and more destabilizing than what we've already experienced in the last several weeks. Do not grow weary in doing good. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love. Be united to Christ in prayer. Seek him in the Psalms. Be gentle to one another. Pray for those in authority over you. Forgive your leaders and forbear with them, with me. I am a sinner and in need of your prayer.